John chapter 17. We are going to proceed. I encourage you to open up John 17 in front of you. We saw last week that we are people of the word. That means that we read it, we look at it, we check everything by it, especially maybe everything that I say. Again, check my words according to God's word. So I want you to see God's words as you listen to my words. John 17, we're going to seek to do verses 10 through 16 this morning, page 903 in the Pew Bible. We have been talking about identity. Who are you? We all of us have and operate out of an answer to that question, whether we know it or not, consciously or subconsciously. We have some sense of ourself, some idea or conception of who we are. What I want to do today is I want to shift from who we are to talk more about what we are for. And the two are closely connected. Our identity is meant to determine our activity. Who we are is supposed to control what we do. So last week, I asked you to consider how you answer the question, who am I? This week, I want you to consider how you answer the question, what am I for? What would you say is the point and the purpose of life? And not just in an abstract and general sense, but what's the point and the purpose of your life? What would you say that you are for? And what would your life show that you are actually for? There was an important study uh, almost 20 years ago. It was conducted by the Notre Dame sociologist Christian Smith. He was helped out by researchers from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So you are welcome. And Smith published his findings in this book he titled Soul Searching the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. What generally were the beliefs that characterized the average American teenager then? And I'll argue that it's only worse now. Well, Smith described this kind of average belief system, coining the term moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. That sounds complicated. It's not. Stay with me. Smith lists five basic beliefs that increasingly characterize American religion. And I'll give you the first three. Here's what most people on average generally believe. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. That's the deism part. There is a God, but he's relatively distant and he generally doesn't do very much, but kind of sit back and watch. Number two, the belief is that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. That's the moralistic part. Hey, be nice. That's what uh, religion is all about. And then number three, this is the one that I want you to pay attention to. This is what most people believe. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's the therapeutic part. Life is all about being happy and feeling good about yourself. That's what you are for. I would have been a teenager when they conducted this study, and so the subjects of the study would be adults now. They'd be about my age, approaching 40, getting old. But most of them probably carrying those same beliefs into adulthood today, and I believe 
that these basic beliefs characterize not just teenagers then or now, but our culture as a whole, and much of supposedly Christian culture as well. And however well we may be doing, it's impossible that this increasingly dominant worldview has not influenced and affected our own beliefs as well. You are living more than you know out of the belief that the goal of your life is to be happy and for you to feel good about yourself. What are you for? Most people would say to be happy and feel good about yourself. What do you say and what does Christ say? That's what we're going to consider from these verses this morning. We have been arguing following Lloyd-Jones that most of our problems are rooted in a failure to understand the true identity of a Christian. We don't realize our position and privilege, our identity and our inheritance. And directly related to that, most of our problems are also then rooted in a failure to really understand the true activity of a Christian or, or, or the purpose or what we are for we're still quite prone to think that we are for ourselves and for feeling good about ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5.15 He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. So last week was we are the fathers. That identity includes with it an activity and a purpose. We are then for Him. And I want to unpack that and flesh that out with three points drawn from our text today. What are you for? Point number one, we're going to see that you are for glorifying. What does that mean? We'll see. Point number two, we're going to see that you are for joy. That's an interesting one. And then how do those two things actually happen? How is this all possible? The main idea is the last idea. Point number three, you are kept. So here's the sermon. God keeps you and guards you that you might glorify Christ and find joy in Him. God keeps you and guards you that you might glorify Christ and find joy in Him. John 17, let me read the text for you. I want to read the whole second part of the prayer, so I will read verses 6 through 19, but our focus will be in verses 10 through 16. I encourage you to pay attention Because this is what God wants to say to you today. John 17, verse 6, Jesus prays. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And I have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Bow with me. I still want to pray one more time. Let's pray for this time. And let's pray for God to work in it. Father, please help us. Father, serious and sobering things have happened in this service. Father, there are serious and sobering things happening now. So, Father, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you are in control. We thank you that you work all things for good for those who are yours. Continue to restore Joyce to health. Give those who are helping her much uh, skill as they uh, care for her. Father, help us to focus on these next few minutes on you and on your word. Father, what we are for and what this time is for. Father, we want to honor and glorify you in this time, and we want to find much joy in doing so. So please help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, you are for glorifying. Good spot for a little bit of review. Our first point is coming from the end of verse 10. Listen to the end of verse, listen to verse 10 again. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and here it is, and I am glorified in them. That returns us to the big and main theme of this whole prayer. Remember, the whole of chapter 17 is a prayer from the Son to the Father in the hearing of the disciples. And it is a prayer on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Moments away from that betrayal, he is speaking to the Father um, in uh, the hearing of the disciples. And so he is praying for them, but at the same time, he is also instructing them as he prays audibly for them. And what Christ prays for here is most instructive. And what, what do you pray for? What is it that you tend to pray most for? Because prayers reveal priorities. Don't miss what Christ prays for and the nature of what Christ prays for. What does the one perfect in knowledge, power, and love pray for those whom he loves? What does he pray for you? Not that you would be healthy, wealthy, and happy. Not that you would be comfortable and at ease. He prays not for spouse or house, job or healing, money or success. In other words, he does not pray for that which we almost only pray. In fact, he prays nothing in regards to earthly, worldly, this lifely things. He prays for spiritual things, for kingdom things. Jesus prays here for the health and wealth and happiness of your soul. And so I'm arguing here that the focus of this prayer for you, uh, the focus of the prayer of the one who is perfect in love and knowledge, must also reveal and relate to you what you are for. Prayers reveal priorities. Jesus does not waste words. Surely he does not waste last words. Words. What he prays for you here is what he wants for you, which must be what is good for you and what you are for. 
But before we can appreciate what he prays for us, we need to remember what he prays for himself. This is the second part of the prayer. And we're talking specifically here about glory, which drives us back to the first part of the prayer, which is all about glory. What's the first thing that Christ prays for? The controlling idea and desire behind this whole prayer. Look at verse 2. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Christ prays for glory. We hopefully know what that is by now. We get glory. God's glory is the the sum total of, of who he is in all his greatness and grandeur. It is the, uh, his infinite intrinsic worth, his infinite intrinsic beauty. He is infinitely significant and weighty. Therefore, he's the center of everything and everything is about him and revolves around him and is for him. There is no truth more important for you to learn and love and live in light of than the glory of God. He's the center. You are not. It's all about him. It's not about us. He is what everything is for. And that means he is what we are for. And this is the controlling concept of Christ's prayer, glory. He prays that he would be glorified, which means that he would be shown to be glorious. As God, he is glorious. He has perfect glory already. You you cannot add to that which is perfect. And so remember, Scripture speaks in two ways about God's glory. It talks about his intrinsic glory, who he is in himself, as God, all that he is as God, but it also speaks of his extrinsic glory, the the manifestation or the demonstration of all that God is as God. And so glory also is its radiance, its display, it's a showing and shining forth of the greatness and majesty of God. It is God manifesting himself, revealing himself, Uh, It's the external expression of his being and perfections. All that he is on display. And that's what Christ prays for. He says, reveal my glory, show forth my glory, demonstrate who I am, my infinite worth, my value, my goodness, my greatness. May it be seen and known and valued and praised. Now, consider the end of verse 10 in light of all of that. Look at what he says. I am glorified in them. Again, just, it's so easy to pass over that. Consider the weight and the wonder of Christ's words there. Break it down. Consider the subject and the verb and the object there. It's technically not an object, but I'm already talking about grammar, so I'm already losing you. But I'm just going to call it the object, though it's technically not. It's the agent or the actor. But the subject is clear. I, Jesus says, I, the Christ, the Son of God, the God-man, perfect in everything, perfect in power and compassion, complete authority, complete humility, the King and the servant, this Jesus, whom there is no one like in history or in literature, 
As it has been said, if Jesus did not exist, show me who created the character of Jesus and I'll worship him. The point being, no one could have created the character of Jesus. No one could have come up with him as he is so good and so glorious. Just go read the Gospels. Read them carefully and slowly and humbly and openly. Just consider what if this man actually existed? What if the things that he said about himself were actually true? There's no one else like this Jesus Christ. He, in all his perfections, is the subject of this amazing phrase. So it's Christ. The verb is just the verb for to glorify. And the verb is passive. Right? So in this active voice, the subject does the action. In the passive, the subject is having the action done to them. Jesus is not glorifying. He is being glorified. He is being magnified and manifested. The all-glorious one is being revealed and shown for who he is. And here's the amazing part. Here's how it's happening. It's the agent, the last part. He is being glorified in them, in the disciples, and in us. Do we at all realize the privilege that this is? Do we at all realize the responsibility that this is? Do we at all realize that this is what we are for? Lloyd-Jones calls the end of verse 10 one of the most remarkable definitions of the Christian that is to be found in Scripture. Why is that? It's because we, not just creatures, but fallen creatures, sinful, often still also selfish and self-absorbed, little in the eyes of the world, insignificant creatures, we, by the grace of God, can glorify Christ. And we've got to understand what that means. To make manifest, to reveal to demonstrate, to show, and shine forth. That's what Jesus, the Son of God, does for the Father. He makes Him known. 14.9, anyone who has seen Me has seen the Father. So the Father is glorified in the Son. The Son shows the Father and makes Him known. And Jesus says here that He is glorified in us. That means that in some similar way, we can show Jesus. We can make Jesus known. We can bring honor and praise and glory to the all-glorious one. And that's, that's huge. That's, that's wonderful and weighty. We are representatives of God himself. We are here for the purpose of making the visible God known. People cannot see God. They can see us. People are right to make their judgments of the God that they cannot see based upon what they see in us. This is how God designed it to work. This is not only why we were created in the image of God, like Him to reveal Him, but this is why we were redeemed. That image restored, conformed to the image of His Son to reveal God. This is what you are for. 1 Peter 2.9 puts it like this. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that, that's the four, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you 
out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter goes on to write in verse 12, So keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. You see that? The world is supposed to see us and hopefully our honorable and good conduct and glorify God. That's why God chose us and saved us and made us his. That we may proclaim his excellencies, reveal him, show and shine forth his greatness and his goodness and his glory. How do we do that? We do it in what we say and do. We do it with our lips and our lives. We do it in our everything. So you can ask yourself, consider, is Christ being glorified in me? How am I representing God? Consider your last conflict with someone. Or consider the last time something really, really frustrating happened to you. How did you glorify God in that time? How did your, what did your response in that frustration or in that conflict reveal to anyone who would have been watching what God may be like? Was it something true or was it something false? What are we revealing to the world about who God is and what he is like? What would the world be justified in concluding about God based upon its observation of my life? That's sobering. This is a high calling. This is something that we do not consider enough. For this is who we are and this is what we are here for. We are here for glorifying him. Listen to Calvin. Forgot to grab the book. I've recommended his 100-page, a little book on the Christian life about a dozen times. You haven't read it. Just do it and read the book. Uh, glorify God by reading at least one book about God and the Christian life. Uh, this one is one of the best. But this is, this is what Calvin says. I'm going to more preach it and pretend like it's mine instead of just read it so you don't get bored. Because it's a little bit long, but it's, but it's so good. But these are Calvin's words. And this is helpful because I think this is foreign to many of us. But this is what he says. He says that we are consecrated and dedicated to God in order that we may thereafter think, speak, meditate, and do nothing except to God's glory. If then we are not our own but the Lord's, it's clear what error we must flee. And whither we must direct all the acts of our life. We are not our own. So let not our reason or our will therefore determine our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not make it our goal to seek our good and happiness. We are not our own. In so far as we can, let us forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we are God's. Let us there live for him and die for him. We are God's. So let his wisdom and will rule all our actions. We are God's. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only goal. Oh, how much has that man profited who having been taught that he is not his own has taken away uh, dominion and rule from his own self, that he may yield it to God. Catch this, last part. For as considering that our self-interest is the pestilence or the disease 
that most effectively leads to our destruction. Did you hear that again? Calvin claims that our self-interest, and considering that, is the pestilence that most effectively leads to our destruction. So then, the sole haven and refuge of salvation is to be wise in nothing and to will nothing through ourselves, but to follow the leading of the Lord alone. We are God's. That is so good. That, that is so convicting. We do not now live as if we belong to ourselves. We do not now get to live as if we exist to please ourselves and to glorify ourselves and to seek our own happiness in ourselves. We do now live as if we are the Lord's and as if he is life and as if our life is his and for him. What would that actually look like in our day-to-day life? Start with this. Here's your application. Start first with realizing how prone you still are to believe and live as if the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. We, just need, we all need to own that and admit that. You need to realize how often we live as if life is for us, our own happiness and our own glory. It has to start there. Don't forget the oh-so-important John 544 for our self-obsessed age, where Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Whose glory are you seeking? Yours through others or the Lord's? Again, check your social media use. I haven't ripped on it for a while. I've given you a break. We're due. But let's be honest, I don't use social media in part because I know that I couldn't handle it. I couldn't. I'm still so prone to self-absorption and self-obsession, and that's entirely what social media or look at media is about. And I know that I couldn't use it well. Maybe you can. Maybe you're better than me. But maybe not. What's it for? You can ask yourself that. What's it for? What was that post for? Does it glorify God? Does it make him known, show him forth as great? Does it draw attention to him or to you? What if we all started asking, again, not just with our social media use, but with with everything. What if we just started asking, hey, who's this for? This thing that I'm about to do. This thing that I'm about to say. Who's this for? That's your application. Start with realizing how prone you are to believe that life is for you and to live like it. And then take some intentional, practical steps to start working on reminding yourself and believing that you and your life is for glorifying. I am not a morning person. I have been working hard to make myself a morning person. It's slow going, but I don't think that I have ever woken up on a single morning not grumpy. I wake up in a bad mood every single morning. And so I cannot and I do not put my feet on the ground until I have spent time in prayer, time talking to the Lord, time meditating, which is talking to myself as David does, reminding myself of who God is, thanking him for his grace, reminding myself of who I am. I am the father's. I am his. I am for him. 
Try that in the morning. Before you reach for that phone, remind yourself before you start your day, hey, I am for glorifying God today. And then come back to that throughout your day. I am for glorifying God. And when things fall apart, and when people are difficult, and when you are tempted toward anger or despair, ask yourself, am I glorifying God in this situation? How do I glorify God in this situation? For this is what you are for. You are for Him, and you are for His glory. The central goal of life is not to feel happy and good about yourself. And many of our problems are rooted in the fact that we do believe that is the central goal of life. Now, that raises a question. If life is not about feeling happy, if it's not about me, for me, well, does that mean that this whole thing is just drudgery? Hey, suck it up, grin and bear it, get over it. It's, it's not about you, it's about God, so it's the right thing to do whether you like it or not. Well, absolutely not. Point number two. For, you are also for joy. We're going a little bit out of order here. We're skipping verse 11 and the main petition for a moment. We'll consider it again in point three, but more next time as well, because I want to look at both keeping and sanctifying together. For now, skip to verse 13. Look at what Jesus says. Again, he's talking to the Father. He says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Did you know that that's what God wants for you? Do you believe that that's what God wants for you and is working to bring about for you joy? Have you ever really stepped back and considered how central of a theme this is in the whole of Scripture? I opened Sunday school this morning again with Psalm 16 because I can't get enough of Psalm 16. I can't ever get away from it because I still so struggle to believe it. Do you, verse 2, believe that you have no good apart from Him? Verse 11, do you believe that in His presence there is fullness of joy? For me, this has to be an I believe, help my unbelief situation. But because we so struggle to get this and are so quick to forget this, God graciously repeats it to us again and again and again. He gives us a whole book about it. Philippians. He dares to even command it. Philippians 4.4. 4. This is imperative. This is a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That means that it is our duty to be joyful. Yeah, how's, how's that going for you? But I do believe that it's correct to call joy a Christian duty. Scripture Commands it, rejoice in the Lord always. A command from the Lord who is good means that it's something that we must do and means that it is good. Rejoice or be happy. You know, hold on, haven't I been obnoxiously emphasizing the fact, contrary to the prevailing worldview today, contrary to moral therapeutic deism, that the central goal of life is not to be happy and feel good about yourself? Yes. I stand by that. But the problem is not with happiness. The problem is with what that happiness is and where it is sought and how it is sought. The problem starts with making it the central goal of life. You start there and you're doomed to fail. Because as we've seen, that's not where everything starts. 
Everything starts with God and his glory. Everything is for him and you are for him. So that makes him the central goal of life and glorifying him the central goal of life. But that doesn't then mean no happiness. Point one doesn't then mean no joy. No, it's actually point one means joy. It means that this is actually true happiness and joy. This this joy is to find happiness in the right thing, lasting things, eternal things, heavenly things, God himself. And so you don't get happiness by aiming at and pursuing happiness. You don't get happiness by looking at your bad circumstances and changing those bad circumstances. It's not the central goal. And if you make it the central goal, you'll never find it. But God is the central goal. And when we, by his grace, make him the central goal, we blessedly find true happiness and joy as well. That's why when we focus on ourselves and obsess over our happiness, we tend to find ourselves the most miserable. There is great freedom to be found in forgetting the self. There is liberty in looking away from the self to the Lord who is full of joy and who says here that he wants that joy, his joy, fulfilled in us. So yes, you are first and foremost for glorifying God, but it is in glorifying God. It is in forgetting ourselves and having minds fixed on the all-glorious one, the, the one of perfect goodness and perfect beauty. It's with eyes fixed on him in fellowship and communion and relationship with he who is full joy that we find that very joy, his perfect joy in us. That's what he made you for. That's how he made you and designed you to work. But yes, we all know that this is an ongoing and never-ending struggle for all of us to believe this and to live in light of this. Here's the secret. Notice real quick how much Jesus talks about this just in this last evening, just in this, this final discourse. Look back at 1632. Let's just note all the times he says something about this. In 1632, Jesus is preparing the disciples for their failing. They are going to scatter and abandon him and leave him alone. But look at what he says. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. There's, there's the presence of God. Jesus knows and experiences the presence of God. In Christ, God is always with you. Look at verse 20. Talking to them, he says, You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Yes, that's specifically he's talking to the disciples there. But that's ultimately the promise for all of those who are his. We will experience sorrow, but in Christ we have the guarantee and the promise that it will ultimately turn into joy. Look at verse 22. You will have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Look at verse 24. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Apparently, prayer is one of the means to this joy. Look at verse 27. Here's the secret to all this. This isn't joy, but I couldn't resist it when we were back in 16. For the Father himself loves you. That's, that's the joy. The always present God is the always loving God, pursuing the good of his people always. 
How do we know these things? How do we learn to appropriate these and, and live in light of them? Here's the big secret. Look back at 1511. Similar to our verse. Look at 1511, last one. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You see how much Jesus talks about joy in his final moments? He is on the brink of unimaginable suffering and death. Sin is misery. The wages of sin is death. Jesus is on the brink of bearing the great weight of misery and death uh, for all the sins of all those for whom he is dying. Still, all that he's talking about, joy, 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 joy. Why? Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So here's the key. He, he knows the joy that was set before him. He, he knows what's coming. He believes that there is great joy and great glory that is to come uh, in accomplishing the, the work that the Father gave him to accomplish. And he knows that the means to that joy is going to be this unimaginable suffering and death. But the end makes the means infinitely and eternally worth it. The salvation of his people. The glory that he receives in the salvation of his people. And so because he knows all that, he fixes his mind on that, and he faces that which we cannot even comprehend willingly and gladly. And so it's because he knows. He knows the end. Fixes his mind on it and lives in light of it. Do you know? Do you know how to fix your mind on that which is true? And then to live in light of it. Jesus says that he speaks these things. He teaches and gives his word to us that his joy may be in us. So apparently the word is the key to the joy. The reading of that word. And then the meditating on that word. Again, that's the problem that most of us, that's the part that most of us probably miss. That's what we're trying to do with the application in the previous point. Meditation. Hey, fix in your mind that you are for glorifying God. Meditate on that and then live in light of that. What is your mindset? Where is your mind set? Colossians 3, 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. That's, that's biblical meditation. It is the reading of God's living and active word, meditating, which just means thinking deeply and repeatedly on God's living and active word. It's memorizing and hiding God's living and active word in your heart and then praying God's living and active word all in dependence on the Holy Spirit by whom we are more and more enabled to rejoice in the Lord always. That's what you are for. And that's what Jesus wants for you here. He wants joy for you, but he knows that all of those things that you're looking to for your joy won't actually give you the thing that you're looking for. And so again, he, he draws you back to him. He prays that you would find your joy in him, that you would find his joy. You will not find it in the things of the world. You will not find it in yourself. You will not find it in your difficult circumstances improving. You won't find it in anything else. If our happiness is dependent on what is happening to us and around us, then we're no different than the world. 
But by the grace of God, we are not of the world. And that means that we don't live like the world and love like the world and pursue happiness like the world. But we pursue it in fellowship with God himself, who is better than anything that this world can offer us. You are for joy. So ask yourself, are you happy? And if not, ask yourself, why not? Because I know that when I'm not, far more than I would like to admit, it really is ultimately because I have allowed my eyes to drift from the Lord and I have allowed my mind to set itself on the things of the earth. And when I say things of the earth, I mean myself and my tendency to believe that I will find happiness within, doing what I want to do, feeling good about myself and having as easy and as comfortable a life as possible. Listen, some of you have real and significant reasons to be sad. And scripture never dismisses those or minimizes those. It never says, hey, just get over it. No big deal. No, it takes the sadnesses very seriously, but it exhorts us not to fix our minds on them. It exhorts us not to let ourselves be consumed by them. It exhorts us to take those sadnesses to the Lord and to openly and honestly lament those sadnesses before the Lord. As we just read in Psalm 44, did you pay attention? how openly and honestly that spoke to the Lord. It encourages us to take those sadnesses also to to one another and to talk with one another about those things and to pray with and for one another about those things and to do all of this in the all-consuming context of the love and power and grace of God. To do all of it in the context of eternity and the eternal weight of glory that God is using these light and momentary afflictions to prepare us for. And if we can grow in our understanding of who we are in Christ, sons and daughters of the living God, entirely by the grace of God, if we can grow in our understanding of what we are for, to glorify Him, and to find ourselves and our joy in so doing, then that is slowly going to help put everything else in its proper place and perspective. Yes, there are bad things and sad things. But don't ever forget the good things and the glad things. Don't ever forget the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know and rejoice in the good news of what God did to save your sinful soul? That gospel that says that it has nothing to do with you and what you did and your own goodness because you don't have any goodness. But that Christ has come to be good for you and in your place, and to offer you life and forgiveness when you deserve nothing uh, but death and condemnation. Do you know this Christ? And are you resting in his grace? Have you repented and believed in the Jesus Christ who is life and joy and peace? There is much joy to be found in him. Do whatever you have to do this week to fix these truths in your mind and live in light of them. Let me just touch on the third point. Weird day. So let's shorten the third point, and then we'll come back and uh, tackle it next time as well. But the third one, this is possible simply because uh, you are kept. And I was very encouraged last week. I hadn't even thought of Psalm 121. Pastor Mike read it. But the whole thing throughout Psalm 121, we read that the Lord is your keeper. We read that the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. And it opens by, ask, by saying, my help comes from the Lord. Where do you believe 
but your help comes from and where do you seek it? Psalm 121 says that the Lord is your help and he will keep you. And so that's a promise that God makes to his people. And then now in our text, Jesus prays twice in verse 11 and in verse 15, keep them, keep them, keep them from the evil one. And so you see that what Jesus is doing there is that he is he's praying the promises of God. I read a great quote from Adoniram Judson this week, the missionary to China. He says that the future is as bright as the promises of God. I love that. The future is as bright as the promises of God. And that means that in Christ, your future is infinitely bright. And in particular, this promise means that your future is infinitely secure. So what we're going to see next time is that Jesus prays two things in this prayer. He prays, keep them and sanctify them. Keep them and sanctify them. Protect them and make them holy. And that's wonderfully comforting news. Because if you are anything like me, a sermon like this can be somewhat discouraging. I am for glorifying. I am uh, for joy. And yet I often live as if I am for self and for discouragement. But again, it's, it's, it's here in this final point that we have hope. We have Christ himself praying for us. And we have Christ himself praying for the things that I am for only by the grace of God. And let's, let me be clear. Listen, it's not those things. And it's not in you doing those things well enough that make you his. It's grace that makes you his. It's God that makes us his. The God who has already said that he is our keeper and that he will keep us. And so here the Son of God prays to the Father God uh, for him to keep us. And the Father God cannot fail to do that which the Son prays for him to do. That which he has promised that he already will do. And so that's your hope. And that's my only hope. That it's his work and that it's a good work and it will be a finished work because he will keep me. That's the stability and the security and the guarantee and the assurance that you need to press on in this often difficult life. There's the motivation right there, not to despair, because you, like me, probably still so struggle to glorify God and rejoice in Him. But that's the motivation to double down and to pursue Him all the more zealously. That's the motivation for me to let my failures point me to his grace and then to let his grace empower me to pursue him all the more. He is kind to let us continue to taste and see that we are not good and that we have no good apart from him. And he does that and he allows us to do that so that we can be driven back to him, to see him as our goodness and to increasingly find our satisfaction in and he does all of this, letting us stumble and struggle and sin, restoring us. He does all of this in the context of our grace-given union with Christ. And there is just, there's infinite safety and security to be found in there. Do you realize and rejoice in the fact that Christ himself prays for you? Do you realize and rejoice in the fact that this prayer is a prayer that God the Father himself, perfect in power, will keep, cannot fail to keep for you. That's a God that is worth glorifying. That's a God in whom you will find fullness of joy. Who are you and what are you for? If 
by the grace of God, you are a Christian, then you are God's. You are kept by him, for him, to glorify him. And it is there that you will find joy. I didn't even know that we were going to sing Christ alone. Before I looked at the songs that Andy picked, I chose to close with the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism that we just sang. So again, great minds. Mind melt. Let me close you with the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Where are you finding your comfort? I love this catechism. Read it. Listen to what it says. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me, keeps me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise that you will keep us, that you will hold us fast. We thank you for Christ's prayer for us, that you would do that very thing. Father, may we take great comfort in your promises. May we take great comfort in the prayers of Christ for us, your people. Father, forgive us for how prone we are to live as if this life is all that there is and as if this life is entirely for ourselves and what we have deemed um, to be happiness and goodness. Father, continue to convince us and to compel us that you are goodness and that you are joy and that those things are only to be found in you. Father, show us how clearly that is proven to us at the cross. For Christ has fully paid for all of our sins. Father, those sins that deserved eternal death, cast as far away from us as the east is from the west. You do not and you cannot deal with us according to those sins in the slightest because you have already dealt with Christ according to those sins. Father, may that give us great joy and great peace and great freedom. Father, may we be a people who glorify you and who find much joy in you because of Jesus Christ. We ask and we pray this all in his name. Amen.